0: You can open your Bibles with me to First Kings chapter 21, and we will be continuing in our series of Elijah. As you're turning there, I believe it was sixth grade when I was able to dissect a worm at school. The smell of formaldehyde of course was effusive in the room and after those worms had sat in that jar of formaldehyde for some time, they were both shriveled and bloated at the same time. I remember you touched them and they were rubbery. A girl in the back of the class shrieked when she heard that we were going to have to cut these things open. Now for my part, it was quite a different experience. I thought this was the best day of school that we had had yet. Now, the purpose of dissection is to discover the internal parts to better understand how something works. How does the blood get pumped through the body and circulate to the extremities? What keeps the form of the body upright? What moves us? And of course, it's through the process of dissection that we discovered the circulatory system, the digestive tract. Many of the things that then went over into another field called anatomy, which is where we organize and categorize these things. Here's what I love about science. It's objective. It's clinical. It gives deeper insights for practical application, which then we can use in things such as medicine. Now, for a moment, I want to ask you to become objective and clinical with a, a subject that tends to be anything but objective for us. And I'm talking this morning about the subject of injustice. You see, there's nothing out there that quite ignites the passion of people than the idea of injustice, the idea of the corruption of power or malpractice or any other of these evil things that take place in the world. And when it comes to contexts like this, as we open up the Bible and we look at scriptures and we talk about God, there is also the tendency to ask the question, why does God allow these things to happen? Why God? So for a moment, as we look at 1 Kings 21, let's set some of those things aside. Let's look at the anatomy of injustice. Why does it happen? What does it normally consist of? And then what does the Bible have to say theologically concerning these things? So we're going to walk into a crime scene like detectives. We're going to examine the evidence, be objective so that we can get at the truth. So I want to pick up 1 Kings chapter 21, and we're looking at the first 16 verses. The text says this, now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered me, Can you believe it? I will not give you the vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she, she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders, the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and, and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he's dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Now, I don't know exactly how it started, but it involved a seat next to a retired football player who had come to speak to the church that morning. So, in the church where I grew up, an event was canceled. It began with a shoving match, and then two men started punching one another. The events that followed, of course, the police got involved. There were court dates that were set. And there was irreparable damage that occurred between two families within the church. Now, all of this, all of this happening because both of them wanted a seat sitting next to a football player. You think to yourself, but it's only a seat. What does a seat matter Well, it set off all of these events. And in the same way, as you look at this story, it's only a vineyard. Ahab is looking down from his rooftop. He's gazing much like David did on his rooftop when he saw Bathsheba. And Ahab thinks in his heart, there's something out there that I don't have that I want now. Now Naboth, he's a righteous man. He he knows the scriptures. He knows Leviticus chapter 25. He knows Numbers chapter 36. The law of God doesn't necessarily prohibit a person from selling their land, and certainly under circumstances, whether it was extreme poverty or something of that nature, people would sell the land. But he looked at the land as a God-given gift that was meant to be passed down from ancestor to ancestor you don't just simply sell something like that. You don't just simply give something like that away because someone has the title king. And so his answer is firm. The Lord forbid. Absolutely not. I will not sell this land. Now Ahab could have cared less about ancestral claims and God-given property, he looked out and he saw something that he wanted. And you know what he does? He does what other despotic, spineless kings do. He goes home and he pouts like a two-year-old child. Because he knows something, doesn't he? He knows that Jezebel's going to see him pouting. And he knows that when she sees him pouting, she's the type of wife that will do something about it. And of course, the rest of the story goes on. Now, I want us to make some observations about the anatomy of injustice based upon these verses that we've just seen. Notice first that injustice happens when power is corrupted. When you look at the scriptures in Romans chapter 13, the Bible is very clear that government has a responsibility, a delegated authority. Government bears the sword, and the purpose of government bearing the sword is for the sake of protection and the promotion of peace through the land. So Ahab's responsibility in this story is not to look from his rooftop and see a vineyard that he wants and then to go and try to remove it from another person. No, his responsibility was to protect Naboth. Lord Acton said these words, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are always, almost always bad men. Now, you may think that that's a little cynical, but you can also think that maybe it's pretty representative of human nature. Whatever the case is, Ahab sicks his wife Jezebel on the man who said no. Now, Jezebel's a shrewd political tyrant. She knows better than to send soldiers out in broad daylight and massacre Naboth in his own vineyard. You do that and you create a martyr. No, Jezebel knows that she needs to work the system. And this leads us to another observation. Injustice often happens through the system. It's not despite the system. It happens through the system. I mean, look at this story. Notice how she works it. She writes a letter in Ahab's name, seals it um, with his seal, The letter is directed to the elders of the city, the leaders of the city, so they are told to declare a fast, a day of prayer. Now, it may have been injustice, but it would be religious injustice. She also directs them that there must be two witnesses according to the Deuteronomic law. So it may be injustice, but this is going to be legal injustice. Now, we can ask the question, how does it happen through the systems? There's a lot of talk about the corruption of systems. I just want to say this this morning, that systems are pretty objective. They're just a way of organizing ourselves. If you think theologically about systems, the reason systems become corrupted is because there are people running the systems. That's what Scripture tells us. We have fallen natures. There are individuals who can be corrupted and bribed. And Jezebel just needs to find two of these kind of people. Now you look at the text and it tells us that they are worthless men. Worthless men. Now the meaning of that word, um, if you actually looked at it in the King James Version, it would have been translated the sons of Belial. Later on in Scripture, Belial is a designation for Satan himself. So they have the character of Satan. If you look at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 12 to 15, we get a further description of these types of men. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of us in this moment, but understand this. The word of God has these types of people pegged. They are worthless because they add no value to society. Proverbs 19, verse 28 says, they make a mockery of justice. Now let's ask about the elders and leaders for a moment. Now, this doesn't have to be a done deal what happened to Naboth, does it? Jezebel could have sent that letter out And the elders and leaders of the city could have said, absolutely not. We know Naboth. He's grown up in this city with us. He's a righteous man. Surely we're not going to do this to him. But Jezebel's scheme goes like clockwork in verses 11 and 14. And that leads to another observation. Injustice happens When a system of cruelty creates a culture of fear. I mean, what would have happened if they had refused? Well, they knew. You see, if Ahab was unaccustomed to hearing the word no, Jezebel didn't know that that word existed. There were certain considerations that came to mind. We have families. We have livelihoods. We kind of like our head attached to our body. And so these men succumb, because who knows what the mafia of Samaria might do if they failed to toe the line. And it gets you to think about some of those deeper questions that we ask sometimes. You know, I've thought these questions quite often. How is it that this culture can descend upon a whole society to, to where you have the extermination of a people group like the Jews? Or how is it that our own country during World War II decides that it would be appropriate or right to intern Japanese citizens during the war? Or you don't even need to think that big. How is it that we read stories of men and women who have families and and a good reputation in the community and they're caught up in corruption and, and, and evil practices that hurt people within their own community? Or even Christian organizations? How does a board of directors idly stand by, even defend a ministry founder, CEO type who has run off the moral rails? I mean, not only are they saying nothing, but they're also complicit. Dell Ralph Davis notes, injustice flourishes not only by wickedness, but by weakness not merely from a lack of goodness, but from a lack of guts. And it was in this environment of fear and weakness where Naboth's so-called death penalty took place outside of the city on a garbage dump. His motionless form His pulverized mass of meat and bone was a silent testimony that this is what happens to anyone who says no to the government. What's done is done. And in verses 15 to 16, Jezebel callously pulls Ahab aside and says, go, take your vineyard. Naboth is dead. I mean, do you hear that? It's heartless. It's matter of fact. And that's because injustice happens when people are no longer seen as people. They're pawns. They're objects to be manipulated to serve my purposes, my interests, my means. And if, and if you say no, of course, well, you can be dealt with like a pesky mosquito. You don't manage or negotiate with mosquitoes. You squash them. Let's look at this from a different angle now. We need to start thinking theologically. That—that That is a cold, just secular look at injustice in the world. But now we need to start thinking about it theologically. Again, I, I raised that big question, why does God allow these types of things to happen in the world? But before we get to that question, because I think sometimes we can get a little um, kind of stuck in our mind on that question, we have our list of questions and we can't get off of those, I want you to ask a different question for a minute. What would happen if God didn't exist? What would the world look like? What kind of justice would we have? And I want to tell you this, the godless version doesn't inspire any hope in me. You see, the godless version of this story ends at verse 16. It's over. The mosquito has been squashed. Corruption and wickedness when there will be no satisfaction. But here's the thing about 1 Kings 21. There's a verse 17. The story keeps going on. The next part of the story gives us a basic framework of the theology of justice in the Bible. And we come to understand that there will be no justice unless God is placed into the equation. So let's pick up the story and take a look. Pick up at verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, "The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat, and anyone of his who dies in the open country the birds of the heavens shall eat. So here's what happens now. We add God into the picture. We start seeing what can could be and should be when God is involved in the dynamic. Notice first that justice will happen because God always sees. Now this point is implied in the text. This is implicit in the text. Jezebel and Ahab have committed the perfect crime. All the leaders, the elders of the city are involved in it, so there's not going to be any bombshell stories. There won't be any administration leaks. In fact, as you look at the story, it's pretty clear that not even Elijah is aware of this. But here's the thing. God sees God always sees, and so in verse 20, Ahab says, have you found me? Well, of course he has. You see, this truth is meant both to provide comfort and to also cause dread in the heart of humanity. It causes dread in the heart of the abuser There is nothing that takes place in the darkness, the Bible says, that will remain in the darkness. Hebrews 4.13 says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must be given account. So there's not one single act of violence that takes place in the world that God does not see. But on the other hand, It's also meant to bring comfort, comfort to the abused. You can take comfort in passages like Psalm 1014, which says, but you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. He sees everything. Scripture tells us that he takes it a step further. Not only does he see what happens, but we also come to realize that justice will happen because God will see to it. He will ensure that justice will happen. Now in verses 21 and 22, I want you to notice the personal pronouns where God says that he will personally be involved in Ahab and Jezebel's death sentence. He says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel sin." Now, this is important as we think about justice in our world. Because the Bible is very clear on one point. We must leave ultimate justice in God's hands. It's true. We must leave ultimate justice in God's hands. Anyone here a fan of crime TV shows? Okay, we have some good. Some of you are just not being honest right now. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I love crime TV shows. I mean, I watch murder mysteries. I watch it all. Any iteration of Sherlock Holmes, any kind of crime, like complex crime situation, that can be resolved in about 50 minutes, right? (laughs) And, And really, wouldn't it be great if the world operated that way? But it doesn't. In one of the iterations of Sherlock Holmes that I watched, there was a a crime lab worker who decided that she was going to put her hand on the scales of justice. So what she started doing was the police would come to her and they would ask for DNA results, but she could tell that they didn't quite have the case that they needed to convict a person. So she started making sure that the DNA results always came back positive. She did it for over a decade. And and you can just imagine what was discovered by Sherlock Holmes when this individual did this. It became apparent that over the course of time, there were several individuals who had gone to jail innocently. You see, that's always the dilemma, right, in these shows when we put our hand on the scale of justice. We don't have the perspective to see the way God sees things. And that's why he says in Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine. In recompense, for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly, he will see to those things and he will accurately understand them. You know, one of the reasons we need to entrust God with vengeance and justice is because he can see beyond the realm of evidence. In in criminal investigations, one of the ways that detectives build their case is they discern motive. Does this person have a motive? And if so, what is that motive? But here's the dilemma with motive. Motive. Motive does not indicate that someone actually did something. It just simply tells us that they had a reason to do something if they chose to do it. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are so bad at understanding this motive thing that we don't even understand our own motives. Jeremiah said this. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And we see in this story that God knew the heart of Ahab. He said, you have sold yourself. Now the Hebrew word there conveys the idea of something that is happening on a consistent basis. It could also be translated as to marry so here you have this word play taking case in the text Ahab has married Jezebel and in marrying her he has married himself off to evil ways and practices in a consistent form in a consistent way God had him pegged he perfectly knows the human heart And the Bible tells us that when we stand before him, every mouth will be silenced. You know what that means? It means that we're not going to pull some evidence out of some place that God hasn't discerned already. We're not going to rationalize or justify or say, you know, I had this particular situation going on and that's why I had to do this. God's going to be like, no, He's going to cut through those things. He's going to say, I have you pegged. I know the human heart. Which, friend, I'm just saying today that for all of us, that's exactly why we need Jesus. If I don't know the intentions of my own heart and God knows it perfectly, and he says we're all desperately wicked, we need Jesus. But here's another reason I want to submit to you this morning and this is a big reason that we need to leave vengeance in God's hands. You see, when we take vengeance, we circumvent something beautiful, it's called mercy. Look at this text and and see how God makes space for mercy in verses 27 through 29. It says, and when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. You're familiar with that phrase, cancel culture? You hear a lot about it now. It's uh, on social media. People are talking about it. Uh, As I look at cancel culture, I, I have a serious issue with it. I'm going to be honest this morning. To me, cancel culture is justice without mercy. It is leaving no room for growth or going beyond where a person was formerly. It is justice without due process. What's done is done, Your sins have been exposed, and now you just need to recede into obscurity and never be dealt with again, swept under the rug, whatever. Now, what's funny is you talk to people theologically, some people characterize God in this way. They they ask questions like this, how could a good God send good people to hell? Now, let me just say this. I have two theological issues with that question. The first theological issue is that it greatly overestimates the goodness of people. The second theological issue is it greatly underestimates the amount of mercy that God has been giving people all through their lives. Uh, Every moment of every day, every breath that we take, we've been walking upon this road called mercy. Until, of course, we turn our hearts and our lives over to Jesus, and then we get to start walking on the road called grace. Look at this story. Despite everything that Ahab has done in this story, God in this story looks with joy at the response of Ahab when he puts on the sackcloth. Look at verse 29 again. Look at his words. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in this day. Cancel culture delights in exposing and condemning. They may not be able to send someone to hell, but they want to make their life a living hell. But God, he delights in humble repentance. He delights in postponing the disaster. Look at this story. It doesn't say that he lets Ahab off of the hook, but it does tell us that he postpones to provide space for mercy. Ezekiel 18-23, Do you think that I like to see the wicked die, says the sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live This past week, I was at a pastor's meeting, and we were closing our time in prayer, and I was sitting next to Pastor Derek Jackson. You remember Pastor Derek Jackson. He came last fall, and he's an African-American pastor. He grew up in Alabama, and he was telling us just about some of his experience with racial injustice in our own country. So we dealt with the theme of the gospel and race. How can we, the church, address issues like this? And as we were going around and praying, I, I asked the group of pastors, I said, would you please pray for me for patience? I sometimes struggle in that area, like anyone else. I said, you know, I, I just have all these dreams, these aspirations for church, but I don't want to become a bull in the china shop. I don't want to get one foot in front of God. So he prayed over me, and and what he said, I'll never forget. He said, as he prayed, God, we often want the spaghetti and meat sauce, but we're not willing to wait for the noodles to come to boil. While our appetite is salvating, God, let us be patient with the water as the temperature is rising because it's in those spaces, God, that you are doing so many things. And isn't that the case with justice? We want the spaghetti and meat sauce. We want to see the victim defended and we want to see the oppressor come to justice. But think about this. God is doing things while the water is being brought to boil. I mean, what kind of things is God doing while we're waiting on the water to boil? Well, if he brought the water to boil instantaneously, a lot of bad things would happen, I assure you of that. But in his delays, in his patience, he has done so many things. Think about it. If God wasn't We wouldn't have much of the New Testament because the Apostle Paul would have never came about as he persecuted the church. If he wasn't patient, we wouldn't have been singing this beautiful hymn called Amazing Grace for over a century now because John Newton would have been brought to justice because of his crimes against slaves If God wasn't patient, I wouldn't be preaching to you this morning because I was rebellious in my youth. If God wasn't patient, you wouldn't be here either. Because we all had to walk on that road of mercy for a season. We all had to walk on that road and then find grace. So what we need to understand as we think about justice in the Bible So, of course, thank God for his justice, but also thank God for his patience and mercy. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I want to thank you this morning for your delays. The delay is your season of mercy. It's the opportunity for Ahab to put on sackcloth. It's the time for Paul to be blinded on the road of Damascus and say, Who are you, Lord? To hear the good news. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Lord, we are all only ever here because of your patient mercy. Having said that, we also cry out, How long, O Lord? How long for the day when every wrong shall be made right, when there are no more victims, when justice shall come? I pray a special prayer this morning, that you will give us eyes to see those who are in need of justice. Let us not callously overlook the plight of the downtrodden, the victim, the abused. Help us to be a church who comes alongside of them and loves them and cares for them. Lord, we know ultimately that the greatest act of injustice that ever occurred was the Son of God on the cross. He died in our place. He laid down his life for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And so it's in light of that, Lord, that we say thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Amen.